This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. All right, I'm just trying to wake up. We're going to do better to retrace our steps and try and find another path cutting across. Copy that. In Antarctica, it's ice and ocean as far as the eye can see. There are no roads, no hotels, there's no government. Right now, we're in a little boat full of tourists trying to make our way to the closest thing to civilization on Antarctica one of the many scientific research bases that are dotted around the continent. We're hoping to reach a Ukrainian base called Vernatsky, but it's not easy. We're having to ram our way through incredibly thick sea ice in what's called a zodiac. It's a glorified rubber dinghy. There are big, heavy chunks of ice bobbing on the water. There's so much ice, you can barely even see the water. We get in the zodiac... And it is like the craziest puzzle getting around these huge pieces of ice. My colleague, Emily Carpeau. You could see Vernansky. It was like less than half a mile, you know? It's nearly all sea ice. There's some uh, broken up bergy bits, but most of it is is sea ice. Expedition leader David McGonigal is driving our boat. He's guided tours in Antarctica for decades. Okay, we'll just get some stuff off and we can pull it over. We made it through. We just pulled up. There's a Ukrainian gentleman saying, welcome, welcome. A bunch of Gentoo penguins along the shoreline greeting us here, wondering who the hell these people are coming out. No problem. For the PBS NewsHour, this is The Last Continent, a four-part journey to Antarctica. I'm William Brangham. Oh, careful with that one. And passports. The tourists get out of the Zodiac and head up the wooden walkway to the base, which is really just five or six low-slung buildings stuck on a rocky ledge. Hello. Hello, thank you. A few of the 11 Ukrainian scientists who live here come out to greet us. One or two are bleary-eyed and unshaven, almost like cavemen coming out of the woods. They haven't seen other people for nearly a year. And they've been living off canned food for that long, too. So we brought some gifts. What was the total of what we brought? I think 50 kilo of onions, 8 kilo of garlic, and two cartons of beer. It's a nice peace offering. Yeah. We file into the main building to get out of the cold. They'll stamp your passports if you want, sort of proof that you were actually there. Vernatsky was originally occupied in 1947 by the British and then sold to the Ukrainians 50 years later. It's been the site of some really important science. Back in the 1980s, this is where scientists first discovered the hole in the ozone layer. Remember that? The ozone, which protects the Earth from the sun's harmful ultraviolet rays, was being eaten away by CFCs. That discovery helped lead to the global ban on chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, That changed everyone's hairspray and refrigerators and air conditioning. And in time, the hole in the ozone was largely repaired. 
Today, the scientists at Vernatsky are studying penguins and glaciers. They're tracking the climate. But the base's other claim to fame is having one of the southernmost bars on Earth. Prost, Prost, Prost. The house special, homemade Ukrainian vodka distilled with Antarctic ice. It it doesn't burn, it's... uh, uh, I spoke too soon. (laughs) (laughs) These scientific bases, some bigger, some smaller, some with bars, are really the only structures on Antarctica. And apart from tourism and some commercial fishing offshore, science is what humans do on this ice-covered continent. That's no accident. In 1961, at the height of the Cold War, 12 nations, including the U.S. and the Soviet Union, reached a unique diplomatic breakthrough. They signed what's known as the Antarctic Treaty. It outlawed all military exercises and nuclear testing on the continent, and it put science front and center, saying researchers from any signatory nation can come and do research wherever they want. I think the Antarctic Treaty found two issues that really resonated internationally at the time, one of which was cooperation in science. That's Tucker Scully. He worked for years on polar issues for the U.S. State Department. And secondly, the idea that you could, in fact, create areas that were off-limits to military activities. And even with between two extreme adversaries like the Soviet Union and the United States, you could, in fact, declare some areas off-limits to that kind of, of, of rivalry. And it worked and continues to work. And these nations have gone above and beyond just a peaceful relationship. They've also added environmental regulations to protect the continent. By no means was this the obvious outcome. It could have gone a very different way. Before the treaty, a lot of nations came to Antarctica and tried to claim different parts for themselves. But instead, the spirit of scientific cooperation prevailed. That was once we actually discovered Antarctica. For most of human history, this icy continent was more theory than fact. So Antarctica has existed as a theory long before anybody actually set eyes on the continent itself. That's polar historian Katie Murray. You have these old maps which show a version of Antarctica usually referred to as Terra Australis Incognita, the great unknown southern continent, hundreds of years before man had actually sighted the place. Why did people think that it had to exist? This is to do with some ideas that our ancestors had about the shape of the world. They knew there was these great big land masses in the northern hemisphere, and so there had to be an equivalent in the southern hemisphere, They knew there was an Arctic, and so there had to be an anti-Arctic or an Antarctic. Did that theory make sense? Does it make sense that if there is a polar region, that there must be a a region here at the bottom of the world? I have no idea. (laughs) Turns out, no, there's no geophysical rule that planets must have two identical poles. They don't have to match top and bottom. But Katie is right. For thousands of years, as empires came and went and built civilizations on every other continent on the planet, Antarctica remained a mystery, an unknown land at the bottom of the world. That changed in part because of these majestic mammals. (laughs) 
Several dozen humpback whales are putting on quite a show for this boat full of tourists. The whole front portion came out. All right. Thank you, whales. We are literally surrounded by whales. People just don't know where to turn to see. To be this close to these huge 50-ton mammals is a big part of why tourists come here today. And 200 years ago, these same whales attracted some of the very first people to ever come to Antarctica. But they came for a very different reason. Whale oil was, you know, a critical part of the economy. And essentially, you know, in the 1600s, whales were washing up on Nantucket. If you're a whaler, you just walk out your backyard and there's a whale. You just they're on the shore. That's Alexandra Isern from the National Science Foundation. She says seals and whales became a big lure for hunters. But as that got fished out, people had to go farther and farther and farther. And so they'd already been in the Arctic. And the next step was exploring the southern hemisphere and down to Antarctica. And so a brief Antarctic gold rush began. American and British and Norwegian hunters came here and killed hundreds of thousands of whales for their oil. Whale oil was used in lamps and streetlights all over the world. It was a big business. This British archival film details what the industry on Antarctica was like. The bone, meat and entrails were loaded into the 36 pressure cookers to extract as much oil as possible and the waste bones were crushed down for fertilizer. You still see remnants today uh, around some of the stations where, particularly in the Antarctic Peninsula, where the whalers would have had a kill and they would render the oil on shore and all the remains are still still there because things don't really decay in that cold environment. We saw some of these relics on the black sand beaches at Deception Island. The whole place has a haunted feel. Bleached out whale skeletons sit on the beach, not too far from the huge, hulking, round tanks that once held thousands of gallons of whale oil. Now they just sit there, rusted and empty. After we tour the old whaling station, we all perform the ritual of Antarctic tourism. We strip off our winter gear and plunge into the frigid ocean. The water is so cold, you can only spend a few seconds in it. It's basically a dash in and a dash out. My colleague, Mike Fritz, is standing by the water's edge, filming it You're not going to stay in your clothes all day, right? No, I'm going in here in a second, but I'm actually a bit terrified after watching these people go in. They look like they're having a ball. I don't know. That's not my idea of fun. (laughs) Emily feels the same. Are you ready? I'm as ready as I want to be. Definitely do not want to do this. But we do it. You kind of have to. That is tremendous. Arguably the dumbest thing I've ever done. The whole time, we tried not to think about how we're swimming in what's really a whale graveyard. When the seal and whale populations plummeted, most of the humans stopped coming for a while. Historian Stephen Pine has written extensively about Antarctica, and he says one of the main reasons the continent remained hidden for so long is that it's just an incredibly difficult place to explore. Antarctica proved exceptionally tricky. 
because all of the things that centuries of exploration by the West had relied on, having native peoples as guides, uh, being able to follow rivers, being able to identify mountains, all this is gone. So whatever you want to live on, to eat and to drink, you will have to carry with you. You are just slammed, in a sense, into this completely alien, uh, it's not even a landscape, it's an ice scape. Pine says it took a few more decades into the early 1900s for a new spirit of exploration, driven in part by science, to bring humans back to Antarctica. Antarctic explorers wanted to be the first to find the magnetic South Pole, to be the first to cross the continent from end to end. This whole era is called the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. That era just was an extraordinary outpouring. I think there were at least nine nations, even Japan sent an expedition. This was how you showed that you were a scientific presence, and Antarctica was the place to do it. Polar historian Katie Murray again. This is the time of Shackleton, of the race to the pole between Scott and Amundsen, of Mawson. This is a period of a lot of these really good adventure stories. Remember, in the early 1900s, Antarctica was essentially a continent up for grabs. And as different nations went deeper and deeper into the continent, science was also used to help make land claims. Here's Tucker Scully again. All the early explorers that went down there also were given permission by their governments to make claims. In those days, you could put up a flag, but that really didn't mean anything. Most nations would build a small scientific base, like Vernatsky, to establish their claim. But some other countries took it a little bit further. Argentina has been in a long dispute with Chile and the UK over a particular slice of land in Antarctica. And so, in 1977, Argentina airlifted a pregnant woman to its base in Antarctica. Two months later, an Argentinian was the first recorded human ever born on the continent. Baby Emilio Palma, 7 pounds, 8 ounces, was born January 7, 1978. But unfortunately for Argentina, according to international law, baby Emilio doesn't really help their claim. Being born in a place doesn't really grant you rights to that place. But that hasn't stopped the baby race one bit. At least 11 more babies have been born on the continent. Eight Argentinians, three Chileans. Interestingly, the Antarctic Treaty didn't address sovereignty claims either. It just skipped right over the issue. The Antarctic Treaty is, in effect, a gentleman's agreement, but it's one that seems to be working incredibly well. But some of the treaty's protections, like the ban on oil and gas drilling, expire in 2048. So there's some worry that this could lead to a whole new kind of competition in Antarctica. This continent has up to 90% of the world's fresh water frozen in its ice, and potentially has vast, untapped natural resources below that ice. But Claire Christian of the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition argues that the success of the Antarctic Treaty with its spirit of scientific cooperation between nations, won't allow that to happen. I think there is a very strong ethos that has been developed among these countries that they are responsible for the Antarctic. Antarctica is really the world's last great wilderness. It's a continent that is for nature. And I think that's a really important symbol because, you know, so many other places where human civilization has spread to, we have destroyed the environment, we've polluted the air, we've polluted our water. A lot of countries are justifiably proud of 
what they've achieved in Antarctica in terms of preserving it as a place for peace and science. And I think that that is something that they don't want to go back on. How does it taste? It's hard to describe, but it's getting warmer as it's getting down further. Back at the Vernatsky base where we first began, the various threads of present-day Antarctica are milling together at the bar. (laughs) Tourists from five different continents are chatting with scientists from four different countries. Grant Humphreys, the penguin scientist from episode two, he's playing Blackbird on a mandolin at the back of the room. Beside the bar hang old black-and-white photos of a few of the great explorers from Antarctica's past. And Ron Naveen, our other penguin researcher from episode two, is also here. He's chatting with a Ukrainian biologist who's pouring the drinks. Through a translator, I ask the biologist if he'll share the recipe for their homemade vodka. So he says it's a big, big secret. He's interested, curious. Uh, are they going to ask something about penguins? We don't care about the penguins. We're only here for the alcohol. <laughs> Coming up in our final episode, Antarctica was discovered in part because the world wanted whale oil. The concern now is that our modern-day thirst for a different oil is causing more of Antarctica's ice to disappear every year. I can still remember the first day I appreciated that the ice could change fast. It's becoming clearer that parts of Antarctica appear to be unstable and are losing ice much faster than we expected how that could impact coastal communities thousands of miles away. Let's start thinking straight. It's going to be expensive and it's going to be disruptive if we don't get our act together now. That's on the next episode of The Last Continent. If you want to see Antarctica and those whales and that bar at the Vernatsky Station and meet Katie Murray and everyone else, visit our website, pbs.org slash newshour slash the last continent. There you can find our video series that first aired on the NewsHour broadcast, plus other photographs and extras. And to hear all four episodes of The Last Continent, make sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Last Continent was produced by Vika Aronson, Mike Fritz, Emily Carpo, and me, William Brangham. Editing by Erica R. Hendry. Production assistance by Chris Ford. Fact-checking was done by Sikon Akpan, Maya Lene Bura, Amber Partida, and Zoe Rorick. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Travis Daub, Vanessa Dennis, Brennan Butler, Stefan Rode, James Williams, Julia Griffin, Dan Cooney, Dima Zane, Malia Posey, Adam Saraf, and Laura Strum. And to the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust, for giving us permission to use footage from their film, Whaler's Bay, Deception Island, A Brief History. Thanks also to Dan Devaney and Bruce Kane at WETA-FM. Sarah Just is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. And please don't forget to let us know what you think of the show. Tweet us at NewsHour or leave us a review in Apple Podcasts.